0: In Psalm 127, verse 1, the psalmist writes, "...Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain." Let's pray. Father, I adore You, Lord. I'm thankful, Father God, for the opportunity to come and to preach today, Father God. I pray, Lord, that, that Your hand is as much upon these words as I believe it is today, Father. God, I thank You for giving me um, time, Father God, this week to really focus on what I would say today, Father God. I thank You, Lord, for for taking every moment, God, of, of time of preparation giving me an anxiety about it, Father God. I wasn't settled on this, Father, until You had fully revealed it, Lord. And I'm so thankful that You have. I pray, Father God, that though my words are simple and they're humble and they're weak, Father God, as I am weak, Lord, I pray, Lord, that they're, they're not limited by my character my abilities, but they are stronger and more vibrant and better, Lord, because you have infused them, Father. I pray for this now, Father God. I pray even though we are small in number today, Father God, I pray, Lord, that you will take hold of each and every heart that hears this right now, Father God, and that you will do just fantastic things through it, Lord. We need a revival in our midst, and we need it now, Father God. I know I feel, Lord, like I know what we need, but I know, Father God, only You can bless us with that quickening of the Spirit because only You, Father God, have the supernatural power to quicken the hearts of men and women, Father God. So I pray for this now. I pray, God, for You to do mighty and powerful things and lift up this church, Father God, in a way that that as leaders, Father God, we're just not able. I pray, Father God, for You to... God, just, just show us Your face today, Lord. Uh, everything about You, Lord, keep nothing secret, Lord, today, nothing hidden. But that we may, be see, we may see, Father God, and from old to young, that, that a new enthusiasm, a new desperation, Father God, a new urgency just takes over our hearts, Father God. I pray for that now, Father God, but more than anything, Lord, I pray for the lost that are they're going to come in contact with this message through whatever way they come in contact. I pray Father God this on the slip of a paper forgotten on a seat and they see it, Father. That that is enough, Lord. And I pray Father God that you would you would tame their wayward, rebellious and wicked hearts. God, not through my words but through yours. Pray for that now, Father God. I love and adore You, and I thank You and ask You, please, God, to fill the rest of this message, Father God, with Your power in a, in a way that only You can, Lord. Lord, I am I pray now, Lord, that You reign in our midst. In the name of Christ, I pray, Lord. Amen. Now, what I'm going to say today, I'm just being blunt now, I'm saying to You on behalf... Of, uh, of what I believe to be true, and at the same time, what I say about, say, I say the 21st century church, folks, is true about us too. There's no insanity that this world has fostered that is not present right here in our little town. It just isn't. We're a town of 300 people and every depravity is right here. Every problem is right here. We can no longer look at, those, at, the, at the weird coasts and say, oh, well, that just happens. It doesn't. It happens right here. Um, the terrible thing about modern technology is it has connected those who struggle with new avenues of struggle that they might not have ever thought of. Okay, so now we see this kind of coming together where the world gets incredibly small. Now, when it felt big, when I was a boy, it felt like there were things you had to travel far away to see and you simply don't have to travel. You may see them in greater numbers, but you don't have to go very far to see how much human beings can dishonor God with their bodies or with their minds. Okay, so whatever faces us, faces all of us. I mean the whole church, without a doubt, right now, all of us. So when I say 21st century church, that means you, that means me, that means us. It's just not limited to this building. The world around us, and I'll say this, it's a world that at one time intellectually understood and embraced the direct approach of the gospel. And what I mean by that is very simple. Is that there was a time in which you could go out and share the gospel and people would listen to you even if they had no intention of believing it. Even if they were alien to it and they knew it and they acknowledged it, they would politely hear because they understood there was something about it. They, were, they superstitiously valued the church. You don't do that in church. You don't act that way in church. I can't me How many times I've heard, to be blunt with you, lost people say, but you don't do that in church. They had an understanding that the church was something sacred. Even if they did not share in its sacredness. They understood that it was sacred. Acknowledged the impending threat of the eternal state of man. They knew there was judgment at the end of time. Like I said, this is just cultural, it is superstitious in its nature, but they still acknowledge that, which meant going out on the, on the street and handing out tracks was a really easy thing, even in big cities. Because everybody thought the same way. Catholic or Protestant, we were almost all claimed those allegiances. They were just cultural Christianity, what we call it now, cultural Christianity. But it didn't matter, it made witness easy. You could go out and do it. You could go out and hand out tracts and people would listen to you. Even if they had no intention of ever believing, of ever surrendering. Even if they had no concept of what belief and surrender really was, in terms of Christ, they'd still hear you. That's gone. That world died. It's kind of present around here, but you get two feet outside of my eyes, and you find out that people simply do not even acknowledge that anymore. Now, this world that we live in regards our beliefs as, first off, irrational. They just don't make any logical sense. In the war, if there was one between science and faith, science has won. Faith has lost in those terms, in the terms of the hearts of the world. They no longer have to listen to us because it's irrational. It's unfounded because they do not believe the basic text from which we derive our information. They do not believe the Bible, not even superstitiously anymore. The Bible is nothing to the world. Nothing to the world. False. Simply put, they will tell you into your face, if that's the way you encounter them, that you are wrong. That you are wrong. Now before they lived as if you were wrong and they were right, but they didn't might say it. Now the world says it. And then finally, the truth we believe, they see as damaging or dangerous. What we say causes problems, what we preach and believe, ruins the world and does not save it. That's what the world thinks nowadays. That's the the ground, that's the battlefield in which we wage our warfare right now. We have to convince people that what we say is right and good. Bloody harder than it used to be. And I said this, it's a fact which terrifies the church. I think a significant portion of us, especially the older ones, are absolutely angry and terrified over this fact. Because you did not grow up in a world that thought this way, did you? You were not born into a world that thought of Christian things as bad. They were thought of as good even by those who did not embrace them, who would not be changed by them, they still thought they were good. The lost man would tell you he needed to go to church. He would say he needed to practice the morality of the Bible, for instance. But not anymore. And I think that scares a lot of us. Moses spoke to dread in his time. And hours when he wrote Deuteronomy 31.6, he said, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. A sacred promise from Moses, not just to the Israelites, but to all of us who through circumcised hearts would long for the kingdom of God. The saved believers can hear this and say, that's a promise from God to me. He will never leave me nor forsake me. God goes with me. Wherever you go, whether it's girls that go to international missions, or it's right around the corner, God goes with you. You are not alone. You do not depart in His name alone in this world, but you do so in and through His power. You have as much health and as much brain and as much passion as He will give you and He needs you to have, and that is infinite. He's not through with any of us. Your health keeps you from nothing. Your age keeps you from nothing. It is only limiting if you allow it to be limited. There's only a cage around you that you construct of your own lack of faith. That's the only one. On the verge of the fulfilled promises of God, the great leader Moses, he lashed out at that lingering fear. Because what I, I, you know, I'm just rationalizing my way into this passage. But Moses knew what had brought those Israelites to that moment of the destruction of an entire generation. They looked out into the Holy Land, a place designed for them, and they saw nothing but fear. Nothing but fear. It was the end of an entire generation of Israelites right there. Look, anxiety and apprehension will destroy the church. Whatever is whatever it is that we are afraid of today, whatever it is that makes us anxious today, whatever it is in this room that we have not fully surrendered to Christ will place shackles upon our lives. There's a call today to throw aside fear completely. Whatever it is, whatever you fear, surrender. All of the potential of the gospel in the church is despite the quality of the metal of modern day Christianity and the modern Christian, us. The gospel is so much braver and so much more glorious than the gospel lived out through us. We're holding it back. C.S. Lewis said we make men without chess and expect of them virtue and enterprise. I can't think of anything that characterizes the modern state of, of humanity, the modern state of manhood or womanhood it, other than people without chess. Even when we are full of bravado, it's false bravado. It's fake. And everybody sees through it. We've allowed our weakness to rub off on the gospel. I can't imagine God raising up, raising up a William Carey in the midst of all this, all this weakness hidden behind anger and frustration and bitterness. Can't imagine one of us going to the mission field and staying seven years before you make a convert. We don't want to wait seven minutes for the glory of God. It's me too. I'm not a, I'm a picking on you. I'm displaying my own weaknesses for everybody to see. That's what drives me nuts. But I know God will. I know God will take a child in this church and raise up a, a Billy Graham or a Billy Sunday. I know God will take a child in this church and He will absolutely raise up someone who will pre- preach the gospel to millions, maybe even Billions. Will hear the word. These are his direct intentions. C.S. Lewis added, he "said We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst." That's right. It may very well be that we've spent generations raising the wrong kind of Christians. What we thought was good was really bad. What we thought was right was wrong. Look, Christianity is supposed to represent the very best possibilities in humanity. People are supposed to see us and, and they, all, they all have confidence that when you meet a Christian, you meet someone who'll literally do what Christ did. He'll get his very shirt off his back. Who won't just walk one mile, but two. Someone who'll lay down his life for a friend. That's what the world, they may not expect it, but by the truth by, by which we are governed, they ought to expect it. The conforming of weak, self-absorbed, wicked, and violent men and women into the image of the heavenly, eternal, and love-defining God. That's right. God goes down into the midst of the deepest hole into which a lost man or lost woman can dig themselves. And He lifts them up out of the mire and out of the muck. And He makes an image-bearer of Christ out of that. He finds them in the bar room. And He finds them in the alleyway. And God does fantastic things with them. The world doesn't know it, but they ought to look at us and shake their heads. Because the reality is they'll look at the church and shake their heads because the Bible promises of what God will do in people is nothing like what we're showing them. The greatest example, God took a... Fire-breathing, hater of the church, killer, murderer, and humbled him on the Damascus Road and brought the gospel to the world through it. He took the church's worst enemy and changed his heart. What will he do with you? What will he do in your sin? What will he do in us? What will he do with a church this tiny if he can take a murderer and make him an evangelist? Write 13 books of the Bible through him. What's he capable of doing? There's no limit. There's no limit. Look, everything about the gospel is the power and might of Christ on display. His sacrificial love for the world and His commandment that we carry the cross to the very ends of the earth. We cannot preach a gospel that doesn't talk about those very things. The gospel is the power of Christ lived out in us. So many before us have died to make this so martyred like Isaiah. For truth it was not his own, merely a gift of God to a man of unclean lips. So how Isaiah described himself. Or the response of Peter to the power of Jesus displayed when he said in Luke 5 but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. That's who God found on your Damascus road. A sinful man, a sinful woman, not deserving of the gospel not ready to hear, not willing to hear, but God humbled your heart. He changed your mind and He gave you a new heart and a new spirit. He did all that. He did to you what He did to Paul and what He did to Peter and what He did to Isaiah. Brand new, from the inside out. On the shoulders of men and women like this, we often perch with trembling hands and quivering voices. We don't know the power below us. We don't know the power that's in the Gospel. If we knew the power that's in the Gospel, we'd never be afraid to give it to anybody. If we knew the power that was in the Gospel, if we really comprehended the power of the Gospel, we would shout it. We couldn't restrain it. Or, we look at the world... Perched on the shoulders of giants with faces contorted with rage and aggression. We just get mad at the world we see around us. Look, the only difference between the world and me is that they are outside about their stuff. I was just as black and just as wicked and just as dark and just as evil and just as much in rebellion against God. I just never told anybody. You were just as dark and just as wicked. And if you don't think you were just as dark or just as wicked, you're not saved. You have not understood the depths of the glory of God, nor the blackness of your own sin. There is no lost man in New York City any more lost than you were lost. Our response to the issue of the rebellion of the world from the perfect order of God cannot be one of anger or fear. Both of those are out. Both of those are out. Not human anger or human fear. We must never give in to the crippling effects of terror or wrath. You don't be afraid of it and don't let it make you mad. God doesn't need me to get mad in His place. God has infinite wrath to pour out on a finite world. God can handle anger. Paul Gerhardt wrote the old hymn. It was translated by John Wesley. Makes it even better. Give to the winds thy fears, hope and be undismayed. God hears thy sighs and counts thy fears. God shall lift up thy head. Through waves and clouds and storms, He gently clears the way. Wait thou His time, so shall this night soon end in joyous day. Soon end in joyous day. Give your fears to the wind. You're not afraid of anything because our Master fears nothing. Look, the steady march from the 19th century to the day, which is laced with the impending doom of a post Christian world. And I say that to the horror of like Europe, which calls itself post Christian, for what we believe is a fairy tale, which cannot be derailed by our ire, our dismissive arrogance or our fear of the qualities of the world to come, and and nostalgia for the world which is lost. None of our ways have ever honored God. No civilization that has ever existed upon this earth has ever managed to honor God. We were all lost. All in need of a shepherd. All in rebellion. All of the methods of men bring glory only to men. We long not for the past. I don't care a lick about going back to when you were a child. At all. You know what I long for? What we ought to long for? The millennial future. Because in the future, what you thought really, really honored God didn't honor God at all. But what comes in the future, one of these days, under the kingship of King Jesus, will honor Him completely. Will honor Him without holding anything back. The past is trash, rubbish, refuge. The future is in the honor and glory of God. The reign of Christ are the hearts and minds of His people which in, will envelop the world with His powerful goodness. The mechanism for that is the gospel. Do you hear me? God conquers the world with the gospel. I believe that we must be governed by seven principles which must govern how this church conducts every business in which it's engaged. This is kind of manifesto-y. I apologize for that. I can't think of any other way to share it. But everything we do, everything we're engaged in, financially, missionally, evangelistically, pastorally, spiritually, everything, everything we do as a people... Everything we ought to be doing is governed by, I believe, these seven principles. One, only Christ can soundly build and rule over His kingdom, the church. We found that in Psalm 127, verse 1. This Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Everything we try to do here that does not have Christ at the heart doesn't just fail, but drags us down. Everything we do in this room that does not have Christ at His heart, a bold presentation of the gospel should be put away with. We shouldn't spend one more dime or one more minute on it. Because it is literally wasting God's resources. So whatever we're doing, we better turn it to the cross. Or we better turn it off. Two, the church is the forerunner of and a symbol of the coming kingdom of Christ. We are a symbol of the millennial reign of Jesus. And the church must conduct itself in a way which honors Him and not itself. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians twelve twenty seven. Now you're the body of Christ and individually members of it. Together, collectively, we are the image of Jesus for the world to see. We are His body. We are here for Jesus to see. Excuse me, for the world to see Jesus in us. Three, God defines stable growth. His way. So we can stop anguishing over these things and having anxiety over them. I do it all the time. I've done it all weeks. Having anxiety over the church. It's what led to this. Listen, God defines it. It's not me or you. We don't look at the church and look at the numbers side, whether this is good or that's good. God defines these things. I think, I believe, He defines them this way deep spiritual and intellectual devotion to Christ. We are people full of the Holy Spirit who show it all the time and our minds are engaged in a deep study of His Word. That's it. It's not casual. It's not easy. Sometimes it's hard. And it's always convicting and it's always confronting that anybody would get in this pulpit and would preach a gospel, preach a portion of the gospel that does not challenge everybody, including himself, is doing a dishonor to the church and to the one who founded it. The people in this world who preach easy to swallow gospels are not preaching the gospel at all. At all. So deep spiritual intellectual devotion to Christ By way of the Bible and worship, which we practice, we're showing this off. Listen, when you sing, you show it off. When you worship here, you show it off. When you hear the Word of God preached, you show it off. And if you're disengaged, you're showing the opposite. If you're disengaged, you're dishonoring God and not the speaker. The speaker is nothing. The God is everything. Can't, we can't say're we're going imp, to implement this or, or teach it to our kids if we're not willing to do it ourselves. Three, four, five times a week, how much we do it, it doesn't matter. You are engaged in it. because if not, it's hypocrisy. Not your hypocrisy, our hypocrisy. Ours. We practice it. We teach it to our families. This becomes a matter of instruction. We insist on this, not just in God's home, but in the homes God has given us. We will follow God in the home. We're going to teach it to our kids, and we're going to share it with newcomers. We're going to be known for this. Man, you don't want to go there and and fall asleep in church. You don't want to go there and not be engaged in church, because they just don't put up with that. Because they are there for the glory of God. Hanging on every word. As I said before, you start hanging on every word and imagine how I can preach. Imagine how they can preach. When they realize, my goodness, those people don't miss anything. It becomes who we are as a people. Our definition. Luke writes in Acts 9.31, which says, So the the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So a church that walks in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit multiplies. If we're not multiplying, it's because of what? We're not walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It has a direct corollary to us for our church will only survive if we become willing and dedicated commissioned soldiers in the work of Christ fostering his kingdom through evangelism and missions in other words if you're not growing you're dying if you're not busy living then you're busy dying Now this is not about your pastoral staff. It's not about your leaders or your Sunday school teacher. This better ring in the heart of every single one of us. Every one of us that claims First Baptist Church is home. Every one. Are we growing or are we dying? Are we closer to the cross or farther away from it? said Corinthians 5:20 says therefore we are ambassadors for Christ god making his appeal through us not i paul is an ambassador of Christ who is we who's we 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 all of us the church God making His appeal through us, the church. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. There is an imploring life that's to be lived that seeks reconciliation to God for everybody we see. It's God's call. Five, our set-apart nature combined with demonstrated Christian love provides the initiative for church growth and stability. Where do we get the the gas for the engine of First Baptist Church? Set-apart nature... We are living differently than everybody else that anybody can see. And we demonstrate Christian love every opportunity that God gives us. Once again, it's not enough to say it. It's not enough to feel it. You've got to do it, don't you? You've got to do it. Saying it's important. Feeling it is important. But if all I can do is say it and feel it and never show it, then my love is theoretical. My love is contemplative and it's not authentic and real. Demonstrated Christian love provides the, the initiative for church growth and stability. John said, uh, John records in John 13 35, by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. We won't, we won't escape that love, folks. We won't. We've got to practice it. I've got to show it. There's no doubt that I have to show this more than I do. But you have to also. Six, the field is ready to be harvested. The field is ready to be harvested. I read a statistic when I first came to First Baptist Miles. I don't know if it's still true. I shall use it because I imagine it's not that much different. But roughly 75% of Smith County does not regularly attend a church. We have 41 Southern Baptist churches. The overwhelming majority of them are almost empty on a Sunday morning. So we don't have to go very far to find lost people, do we? We are literally surrounded by lost people. Everywhere you look, there's a lost man or a lost woman, a lost family. Everywhere you look. And we've discussed it this way before, what I've called generational lostness. Great-grandpa, great-grandma wasn't born again. You go back generations and they've never known the Lord. We may have a lot of work ahead of us, but we don't have to drive far, do we? It's not a long journey. Harvest is ready to be harvested, prepared for the coming kingdom of God by His supernatural efforts and no delay is required. Do not say there are four months when it comes to harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. The fields are white for harvest. They're ready. God is done The work. All we have to do is go. Right now. In an instant. Go. It's ready. Seven. Finally, we must pray every day. Live every day. Serve every day. Preach every day. Listen every day and worship every day as if the future of this church depends on it. Because it does. There are no Sundays off. There are no Wednesdays off. There's no Sunday night in which you just mail it in. There's no Monday night or Tuesday night or Thursday night or Friday night or Saturday night in which we can just sit back and say, God, doesn't matter, because I'm telling you, somebody's watching and judging all the time. If you think you can be one person in these pews and another person at work, you're fooling yourself. If you think you can live the way you want to at a ball game and come in here and sing praises with the same mouth, you are lying. Lying. The only way to dig yourself out of the very doldrums in which the church has found itself in the 21st century is for us to start to live, to demonstrate the gospel and not redefine it. To demonstrate the gospel in a way that impresses the world. God may call upon us to die in a way that shakes the world. Because He's always done it. He's overthrown monarchies with the blood of the martyrs. So why in the world wouldn't He do it now? In Luke 9, 23, Christ says, And He said to all, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. We are self-denying, cross-carrying Christians. Because that's the only kind there is. There's not another kind. There's not another person, another way you can follow Him, but the way He's given us. We can't stay in the rear with the gear. We're all on the front lines of a fight for the the truth of the Gospel. or we're not only not engaged... By our, our example, we are enemies. We have made enemies of the truth. Look, before us is a battle which will be won if fear does not rule the day. And self satisfaction gives way to God dependency and the urgent, faithful witness of the truth to the world. And that's right. It starts in your pew right there with your body. Don't look at me. Don't look at Brian. Don't look at Kyle. Don't look at your deacon. Don't look at anybody else. Look at the person in the mirror. That's who it starts with. It starts with you now. It's not enough for us to be right. We are right. But we must behave rightly. Devoid of contradictions. Convince others of the righteousness of our cause and the truthfulness of our beliefs. We must believe them so passionately and so powerfully that we put put the, the anger aside when people disagree with us. We put aside fear. And the meekest little grandma will slay the world with her faith. Even Christian doctrines like the inerrancy of the Scriptures only exist because of the paradox which exists between the holiness of God and His Word and the actions of His so-called people. As the Lord says in Matthew fifteen, eight through 9 which He quotes Isaiah 29, This people honors Me with their lips, but their heart is far from Me. In vain do they worship Me, ta- teaching His doctrines the commandments of men. Even then, at the dawn of the church age, Those who should have known better were practicing a hollow and weak and foolish faith that impressed nobody, not even the lost. The lost wouldn't fall for it. An accusation against the Pharisees, it sure is, is a warning to the church. Vanity can never characterize our worship or our dedication. They're doing that in vain. They don't really believe that. We've got to believe it it got to embrace it. It's got to become the song of our hearts. The obsession of our minds. Because I tell you what, you can spend your life absolutely obsessed with your little problems... With all the little things that you face and the hurts in the past and the challenges of the future and all those things. I'm sure you can. Everybody can. I can do it. I've got enough. My family's got enough. I can spend my life just worrying about and praying about stuff that's in my house. But I'm telling you this, I'll never honor God in doing that. What honors God is when I surrender those things to Him and I pick up my cross daily and I follow Him. That's what honors God. That's not vain worship. No matter how small, we are never insignificant. As long as the courage of authentic conviction and the love of Christ for the world surges through our veins, I don't care if there are twenty people here. If there are twenty people who love the Lord and they'll die for the truth. God will change the world through it. It doesn't matter. And you can have absolutely be packed out as some of these churches in this world are right now, and they never hear the gospel. It's never preached. We believe it and we live differently because of it, and we act on the gospel for the good of the world. If we do that, we will never be insignificant. We will never be that. Look, the right biblical response to the world around us is best stated to the Lord's uh, in the Lord's interactions with his people as they devolved in the madness of rebellion and idolatry. Look at how God does this. You want how God shares the gospel? Let's look at how he does it. And he does it all the way back in the book of Isaiah. He teaches us through Isaiah in Isaiah 1.18. He says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. There's not anger or frustration in that. There's not bitterness in that. The God of the universe spoke to man and said, Sit down, let me talk to you. He had every right to be angry. Every right to be wrathful. And he looks at people... Who are engaging in rebellion. Who are idolaters. Who have forsaken him for demons and idols of wood and stone. And God says, sit down. Beloved, let me talk to you. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. That's everything the Gospel does. It washes men and women clean of their sins. What was once scarlet and blood-drenched with the murderous evidence of the crimes of the heart is now washed absolutely as white as snow. That's what God does. And that's what He'll do for you if He has not. That's what He will do. Though they are red like crimson, they should become like wool. The washing away of the impact of sin and the consequence of rebellion is the call to evangelism. To grow the church by way of the salvation of the lost that God is calling us to do today. We exist for no other purpose than this mission. If you're the church today, listen in the depth of this. this. This is why you were called out of darkness. To go forth generously and to share the truth. That's why He enlisted you, not to save you. He enlisted you so you could go out and share with others. So that your faith could be multiplied over and over again. We exist for no other purpose, equating men and women with the powerful impact of the gospel of Christ which turns sins as red as blood to imputed righteousness as perfectly pure as snow, as the Savior who shed blood bestows eternally precious salvation on the infinitely offensive sinner. No matter where you go, there's no sinner so dark that the blood will not wash him clean. There's not not a woman so depraved that the blood will not reform her soul. The Gospel is hope. You hold in your heart and in your mouth today hope for the world. The cure of the most dread disease. The disease of sin. The response to the Gospel that Isaiah records in Isaiah one nineteen, he says, If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. Today, if you're a lost sinner, are you willing and obedient? Will you hear what God has to say and act on that? And the appeal here is gorgeous. It appeals to an image which is both familiar from the history of Israel and their journey to the promised land. Isaiah doesn't harkens back first off to when they came right there on the verge of that promised land. Eating the good of the land. But he also harkens back to an even earlier time. When humanity in the form of Adam and Eve, what did they do? They rejected the joys of Eden and the fellowship of God for their aberrant appetites and their own corrupt will. They made a God of their stomach. And they made a God of their mind and a God of their will. And they rejected the real God. Maybe even more egregiously than us because they walked with Him in the cool of the garden and they chose someone else besides Him. They saw Him face to face. And thus we inherit a legacy of sin. In Isaiah 1.20, the Lord refers to the ultimate fate of those who reject His love and kindness by saying, but if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. If you refuse and rebel, devoured by the sword. Look, while the promises of Christ for those who will be reasoned with, who will hear the words of His gospel and be transformed by their veracity and potency into obedient subjects, children of the living King of kings who submit their desires and ambitions to His plan and His glory are best described in Edenic terms. If you will become His, He gives you Eden. 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 Perfection. Everything a man or a woman would ever want, he gives. That was God's intention for his people all along. Perfect, everlasting, infinitely satisfying life forever. That's what he wanted. God never wanted sin. This is what He wants. He wants an eternity in heaven. To reject the Gospel is to reject life eternal in favor favor of infinite death, everlasting suffering. It's related to our hearts by the words of Jesus in Mark 9.48 which says, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The consequences of rejecting Christ are only understood through hellish terms. Pitiful images of eternal anguish. To reject the gospel is really to reject life eternal. Because we rejected the God of the gospel. The end of the gospel for men and women is either prosperity in embracing the cross the love of Jesus and a life lived for Him, or it is an eternal bondage and death by the infinite demands of justice and retribution. It is clear and it is absolutely, absolutely as simple as life or death. Life or death today. Everlasting life or eternal death. Hear the Word and be reasoned with today, please. Obey obey and be made new because Christ Jesus is calling you today. Let's pray. Father God, I adore You and I thank You for the opportunity to come and to preach this, Father God. I pray, Lord, that I have preached it rightly, that I have not neglected it, Father God, or turned my back on it. I pray, Father God, that even though it was hard, that I preached it with boldness and with conviction. But Father God, it's not enough for me to say it that way. God, it's got to be lived that way. I've got to live it this way, Father God, and this people has to live it this way, Father God. There's there's someone, God, in this room that you're calling to, Father God. And I pray, Lord, that they not be be uh, they not, may not embrace a, a dishwater faith, Father God, a weak faith that does nothing in the lives of people, Father God, but they would see an active and vibrant and real faith, a difference in us, Father God, that they can't find in the world, that we would be an illustration and an application of the real truth of the Gospel every day for everybody to see, Father God. I pray Lord for this church to never be contradictory, Father God, but always be complimentary to the Gospel. I pray, Father God, that this church today, God, please, I beg of You, I pray, Father God, that this church today would stand up for the truth. Not in anger, not in frustration, not in bitterness, not in weakness, not quivering. But Father God, I pray, God, that we would stand firm proudly, lovingly, Father God, tenderly, on the shoulders of the giants who died for the truth of the Gospel and its impact on the lives of every sinner who hears it. Bless us today, Father God, that we can love and serve only You with our bodies and with our lives. We thank You, Father God. May the blood of Jesus be applied to a soul today, Father God, and they be made as white as snow. In the name of Jesus, I pray, Lord.